आज की रात तुझे गोदी और तू जो रोएगा तो माँ तू जो रोएगा तो माँ चैन नहीं पाएगी अरे तेरे रोने से सकीना भी तड़प जाएगी अरे हो जा खामोश मैं बाबा को बुला लूँ मेरे अस गए आज की रात तुझे गोदी और ऐसा लगता है अभी रात गुजर जाएगी फिर मेरे लाल तुझे माये कहाँ पाएगी तेरे झूले को मैं एक बार झूला लूँ मेरे अस गए आज की रात तुझे गोदी और तेरी मासूम सकीना को पिला के पानी कल तेरी प्यास बुझाएगा अली का अरे मैं तुझे देख के प्यास अपनी बुझा मेरे अस गए आज की रात तुझे गोदी में सुला मेरे अस गए मेरे अस गए Respected scholars, my elders, brothers and sisters in Islam, Salamun Alaikum. It is an honor to stand before you today as a representative of Husseini Islamic Center Peterborough and as part of the Muharram 2020 team to appeal to you for your generosity towards our Al-Qaim project. Alhamdulillah, we are blessed with a beautiful center. However, with the growing population of our community and trying to accommodate the various ethnic demands within the Shia Muslims in Peterborough, we are struggling to adequately cater the needs of our children, youths, ladies, 
and seniors. The number of our madrasa children have doubled in the last five to seven years. And due to the limited class size, they are being subjected to being taught within the main hall, which is partitioned to create classes. These classrooms have limited teaching facilities and resources, thus causing huge disruption in the children's learning. I'm sure none of us would accept our children to be experiencing such teaching standards within the secular system. Our ladies are divided between the two halls, especially at events such as Khushali, Wedding, Ramadan, Muharram, and other events. And our seniors are separated from the rest of the group due to lack of facilities, thus sadly minimizing their interaction with the rest of the community members. Our young mothers Despite the challenges of raising young children, combined with the pressure of work and home life, makes every effort to attend the center to ensure their children experience and develop the love for the community and grow up within the teachings of our Ahlul Bayt, only to experience social exclusion by being asked to sit in cubicles so others are not disturbed by their children. Our madrasa, having limited space, is not able to hold joint assemblies, graduation ceremonies, and other such marked events. Again, due to the lack of space and facilities, and therefore such milestones events are being curtailed or catered outside the community. Surely, living in the 21st century, in this part of the world, with external challenges and influences surrounding our children, women, youths, and seniors, one would hope that our community's first and foremost needs are prioritized. My dear brothers and sisters, I urge and plea for your support and your generous donation, which will inshallah assist to speed up the completion of the Alkaim project. Alhamdulillah, some of you who may have viewed the virtual tour of Alkaim project would have seen the progress made and your support is now much needed to reach this project to its fruition. Please pick up your phone. A number is appearing on the screen. Add it to your contacts and send a simple message. I would like to donate. To my community members, you can donate any amount in the name of your marhumin. To our young parents, encourage your children to contribute from their pocket money to the Alkaim project. To my community youths who have more recently passed their GCSEs and A-level exams, be the ambassadors of Al-Qaim and advocate to your friends, parents and family members to direct part of your gift proceedings to the Al-Qaim cause. Inshallah, Allah will reward you and bless you with prosperity and future successes. To my community at large, you can set up your birthday or wedding gifts to be directed 
by simply going on GoFunding page. There is no upper or lower limit. Every penny donated to Al Qaim will stand you in good grounding as Sadkai Al Jariya, where your rewards and the rewards of your Marhumin will be seen both in this world and in the hereafter. Again, please see the number on the screen and simply message, I would like to donate. Our team will then be in contact with you. Thank you for listening. Towards the Azadari of Imam Hussein salam, be accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and may he guide us to remain steadfast on the path prescribed by him. Ameen. Let us remember all of our marhumin with the hadya of Surah Fatiha. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. If we could please recite a Fatiha in honor of Ayatollah al-Tashkiri who passed away last week. Rahim Allah man qara'a surat al-Fatiha. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا وعظيمنا وحبيب قلوبنا وشفيع نفوسنا أبي القاسم محمد اللهم صل على محمد وعلى محمد وعلى أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين وأصحابه الغر الميامين الحمد لله الذي جعلنا من المتمسكين بولاية سيدي ومولاي علي بن أبي طالب الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنهتدي لولا أن هدانا الله أما بعد The Jews after Moses separated into 71 sects One goes to heaven and the other 70 will be in the fire of hell the Christians after Jesus separated into 72 sects. One will be in heaven and the other 71 will be in the fire of hell. The Ummah of Muhammad separated into 73 sects. One will go to heaven and the other 72 will be in the fire of hell. Of those 13 impersonated love and friendship for our wilaya, and only one of them will be going to heaven with the other 12 being in the fire of hell. 
The discussion concerning Shia-Sunni sectarianism is without a doubt one of the most sensitive discussions in the Muslim world today. Sectarianism can affect each and every religion and has affected the followers and the members of each and every religious group. Indeed, you find whether it's Judaism, Christianity or Islam, each of these religions at one stage or another had a sect-centric group of followers who were so attached to their sect to the extent that they were ready to attack others, to blaspheme others, to discredit others with an attitude that they didn't mind going to war with. Although sectarianism is extremely difficult to define and can easily be abused as a term for one's own interests, yet you find that Judaism, whether with Orthodox and Reformist, Christianity with Protestant and Catholic, Islam with Shia and Sunni, have all in one way or the other seen sectarianism either escalate or in some cases de-escalate. And that's why you find that since 2003, there has been major discussion on sectarianism. If you go, for example, to academic circles, to think tanks, to different parts of the political world, there have been major discussions on what exactly sectarianism is, how sectarianism is defined, who exactly is sectarian, what type of language is viewed as sectarian, and after 2003 in particular in the Middle East, there was a rise in what is known in some circles as Shia Sunni sectarianism. Whether a person looked, for example, in Iraq, or they looked, for example, in Syria, or you looked in Yemen, or even you looked in Lebanon in terms of some sectarian clashes that took place, you found that that which was known as Ta'ifiyah, for example, was emerging in different circles. In some of these, there was actual religious doctrine. In others, it was political, but with a religious icing. Because a person can easily use the term Shia or Sunni or Orthodox or Reformist or Catholic and Protestant, not because they sincerely follow that particular ideology or that particular sect, but rather because of the fact that that person may have a political motive. I have a motive and the only way I can ensure that my goal or my motive is reached is by making sure that I use these terms. Why? Because I know the followers have a relationship with that term. Therefore, if I want to, for example, get votes, I want to change a law, I want to reform something in the constitution, either I can talk on a national level or I can talk by using these religious particular terminologies. Indeed, therefore, you found that when it came to sectarianism, it could be seen in many different ways. You could have, for example, intellectual sectarianism. You could have, for example, social sectarianism. You could have, for example, academic sectarianism. What do I mean? Intellectual sectarianism, for example, there may be a figure in the history of the religion of Islam. Each of the sects claims he belongs to them. As an example, Ibn Sina, Avicenna, You'll find many different sects in Islam claim that Ibn Sina belongs to them. You may find, for example, Twelvers of the Shia may claim that Ibn Sina belongs to them. Ismailis may claim that Ibn Sina belongs to them. You may have some from the world of the Sunni school who believe that Ibn Sina belongs to them. In some cases, it becomes intellectual sectarianism where you blatantly associate him with your sect. 
even though you may know deep down that his affiliation or his literature belong to another sect, you may also have social sectarianism. Living, for example, in a country, a certain demographic cannot rise to a particular position at their workplace. You may, that may be social sectarianism, but make sure anyone who wants to get a position of CEO has to be of a particular sect. If any of the following sect try to get to that position, you stop them. They may reach, for example, VP. They might be an associate director. The moment you find out that that person, for example, is a Ja'fari, then you stop him there. He's not meant to get to the top status. That might be social sectarianism. Then you may have what? Academic sectarianism. In which way? If an academic follows, for example, the Shi'i school, don't let that person teach Islamic law or Islamic history or Islamic theology. Do not allow them to even get certain academic posts. There are people who are rejected from academic posts to become professors of certain departments because of their sect. Not because of how many articles they published or how many books they've written. Simply because of their sect. They will not be given a certain position in that particular university. You'll find that they'll give the position to someone who, for example, is from a Jewish background. Or they'll give the position to someone who, for example, is from a Christian background. Or even to someone who's atheist. They'll give him the position, for example, to teach Islamic law. But Shia? No. That person who's a Shi'i, they will not necessarily give the position to. So we have sectarianism can be seen on a number of different fronts. Question emerges that this sectarianism, is it always negative? As in if a person views the world in a sect-centric way, where they view the world, for example, in a Shi'i lens, or their identity is Shi'i, for example, or, for example, their ideology, they're proud to speak about their tashayyu'ah. They're proud to talk about their history. They're proud to talk about their theology. Can this be defined as sectarianism? As in, for example, if now when we talk about Karbala, should we be open in what happened about the events of the 10th of Muharram or what led to the events of the 10th of Muharram? Or should we maybe hold back from saying certain things? This debate is one that wrangles across the Muslim community. Because you find that within the Shi'i community today, there are a plethora of opinions as to what is sectarianism and what are the parameters and the boundaries for sectarianism and who sets those boundaries for sectarianism. And when they say that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, you may find someone may look at you as a terrorist, another may see you as a freedom fighter. Likewise, when it comes to religion, what exactly are the boundaries of sectarianism? Is there a particular boundary that all of us have to stop at? If we stop at that boundary, who set that boundary? In what context have they set that boundary? In which political circumstances? Let's tonight examine this issue of Shia Sunni sectarianism. In order that we're able to understand not just the origin of some of the thoughts within the sectarian tradition, but also at the same time making a difference between a sectarian identity, a sectarian ideology, and then going further to look at whether the Ahlul Bayt and whether the Maraji' what they have said, for example, on sectarianism, the main Shi'i players at the front line, what are their opinions on sectarianism? 
And is it that only one school can have a narrative of Islamic history? Or can every school have a narrative? Is it only one school that can dominate? Or can every school have their own version? Further than that, if I call Abu Talib a kafir, is this sectarian? If I say the cause of all trouble in Islam is Muawiyah, is this sectarianism? If I do la'na on Yazid, is this sectarianism? If I say Fatima al-Zahra alayhi salam died angry, is this sectarianism? Who defines all this? And are we as scholars simply cherry-picking parts of history to build an identity? Or is there a point in discussing these areas? And in which way do we discuss them? Let's examine this and dissect the topic in complete depth. The first question that emerges is a question relating to the hadith I quoted at the beginning of the lecture. The hadith that I quoted at the beginning of the lecture, what does it state? It states that there were different numbers of sects that emerged with each religion. Because the first question that emerges is, that doesn't such a hadith show that sects have emerged and therefore there's bound to be sectarianism in our worldview. This hadith, what does it say? It is a hadith in Al-Kafi of Shaykh Al-Kulayni. May Allah bless his soul. In Al-Kafi of Shaykh Al-Kulayni, the hadith which comes to us from Imam Al-Baqir alayhi salam, what does the hadith say? It says that the Jews after Moses separated into 71 sects. And that only one of those sects will go to heaven. The Jewish community, Nabi Musa salam, had come to them, to the children of Israel. After him, that community divided. Nabi Musa salam, had left them with a message of guidance. After Nabi Musa salam, had left them with a message of guidance, you found that they split into how many sects? Into 71 sects. Imam al-Baqir says that they split into 71. All of them called themselves Jewish. But only one of them will go to paradise. The other 70, although they were called Jewish, will all be in the fire of hell. Then Imam says, you have the Christians that after Jesus separated into how many sects? Into 72 sects. Christians after Jesus separating into 72 sects, only one of them will go to paradise. All of these different groups were called Christian. But only one of them goes to where? Goes to paradise. Then he says the other 71 will be in the fire of hell. Then he says the Muslims divided into 73 sects. Only one of them will go into paradise. The other 72 will go in the fire of hell. On the first level, how many sects of Muslims do we have today? Normally, you talk about Shia and Sunni. But even within Shia and within Sunni, you can break it down into so many different sects and offshoots and subsects. You have, for example, within the Shia, we have, for example, the Zaydi Shia. We have within the Ismailis, you have the Nizaris, and you have the Buhra. You have, for example, the Twelver of the Shia. So here within the Shia, you mention some of the sects. In the Sunni world, how many different sects do you have? In the Sunni world, you have to divide them into two and then subtract them even more. Why? 
Because within the Sunni world, a person may follow a particular school for fiqh and a completely different school for theology. What do I mean? You may find someone in the Sunni world, in the world of fiqh, normally four schools are spoken about. They are known as the four madahib. You have Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i, and Hanbali. These are four schools of what? Four schools of law. Then within those four schools, I may now be living in the UK. I may be someone who's a Hanafi in fiqh. But in theology, I have other sects that I have to hold on to. Other ideologies. What do I mean? In theology, as a Sunni, a person may be Mu'tazali. Rather, a person may be Ash'ari. A person may be, for example, Maturidi. Today, I may therefore find someone... All of these are called Muslims. When the Prophet, peace be upon him, his family in Sunni and Shi'i Hadith literature talks of this religion splitting into 73 sects. We can see it around us. As an I see, someone may be a Shafi'i in their fiqh. And they may be Ash'ari in their theology, following the theology of Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari. Someone might be Hanafi, Maturidi, for example. Maliki, Maturidi. You have all of those, but then you have even more than that. Because within those, you may also have a school that emerges, which doesn't really hold on to a particular sect, as in Hanafi or Maliki or Shafi Hanbali. They say, for example, we are Salafi. Yes. We don't say that we are to be bound by four sects. That we are Salafi, we return back to what? To the original teachings of a Salaf al-Salih. Original teachings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon his family, and the pious predecessors, the Tabi'un and the Taba Tabi'un. Then you hear other names. You hear, for example, the offshoots continue. You have over here Brelwis. You have, for example, Diobendis. You have, for example, Ahl al-Hadith. You have, for example, this school, that school. Therefore, how many sects do we have in the Muslim world? When a person says there is Shia and there is Sunni, if you come to me as a Shi'i, and you say to me, for example, you're a Twelver. Yes, Twelver means that in my theology, I follow the Holy Prophet and his Ahlul Bayt. I follow, for example, Imam al-Sadiq in theology. I follow Imam al-Sadiq in law. When a person follows other schools in Islam, they may break down those schools, Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i, Hanbali, Salafi, Diobendi, Brelwi, Ash'ari, Maturidi, for example, Mu'tazali. So many different offshoots emerge. Imam, what did he say? He said that after the Prophet, there are 73 sects. Only one of them will be the one that goes to heaven. Some Muslims might turn around and say, hold on a minute. You're saying that all of us who say, Ashadu an la ilaha illallah, wa ashadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa all of us, you're saying, there's a chance that even with those beliefs, I will not go to heaven. Well, first and foremost, even if you never heard this hadith, there are many who say their shahada but don't follow Islam at all. That, that, that is quite something self-explanatory and commonsensical. That at the end of the day, there may be someone who says la ilaha illallah and Muhammad Rasulullah but doesn't follow any of the laws which Al-Muhammad told him to follow. No salah, no song. Some will say that I don't need salah. I can just love Ahlul Bayt. Salawatullah wa salamu alayhim. And Imam al-Sadiq says our intercession will not go towards such people. So on the one hand, logically speaking, the idea that a person will go to heaven 
just because they said la ilaha illallah and they said muhammad rasulullah at the end of the day if they mistreated their family they mistreated their relatives they were disobedient to the lord they used to mistreat the animals they were rude to people how many times do you have a tradition a person who does well and helps a cat for example who stray may have heaven and someone who's the complete opposite even if they followed the holy prophet their whole life those people will end up where will end up in hell secondly when those groups they all diverted and they ended up being of those who go to hell what was it that led them to hell as in the jews had moses after moses something clearly took place where they separated into different sects as in nabi musa salam, there's no way he would have left this earth without leaving a successor behind do you agree no way I think every Muslim agrees with me who's watching this around the world. Do you agree that Moses, before he died, left a successor for his people? There's no way that Moses would leave the Jewish community without there being a successor who's been left behind. Without leaving that successor. Who's that successor? Was it Aaron? No way. It's not Aaron. Because Aaron, Harun, died before Nabi Musa salam. Then who was his successor? Joshua, son of Nun. Joshua son of Nun was the successor of Nabi Musa salam. Did Nabi Musa salam, tell his people that I'm going to die if you can go and elect someone after me. You can't trust these. Why can't you trust them? These are the type of people a few years earlier were jahil. They were jahil in which way? They were jahil that you couldn't trust them. You couldn't trust them behind your back going towards an idol a statue because a person who was worshiping idols 20 years earlier can i trust him to lead the children of israel of course i can't someone who bowed down to idols can i trust that person to be someone who takes over the jewish community of course i can't the person who is to be my successor who leads the jewish community has to be someone i have raised has to be someone who I have made sure is somebody who has been with me in my most sensitive moments. When I met Khidr, he is one who was alongside me in those moments. When I faced the children of Israel, he's alongside me in those moments. Do you think, logically, a prophet of God would leave the whole of the community that he's guided without appointing on behalf of who? He cannot appoint. Allah appoints. Yes? And would he leave his community without a leader? Is it logical? Because that prophet comes with the Ten Commandments. He's come with the Sharia of the religion of Islam. There's no way that he would come and he would not announce to the people who announced to the people who his successor is. Therefore, Nabi Musa salam announced to the children of Israel, to the Jewish community, my successor is who? Joshua, son of Nun. Did the people hold on to the man who he said is his successor? Not at all. One group did. One group held on to the man who Moses announced as his successor. They said at the end of the day, if the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his family, Nabi Musa salam, if he tells us this is his wasi, the same Moses who's taught us about life, of course we're going to hold on to his successor. We're not going to go in an election and choose someone else moses could have easily said to them that listen when i die you guys go and elect someone yet moses even when he was there before joshua asks allah in the quran min ahli. 
and appoint for me a successor, a vicegerent from my family. He asks Allah to appoint. Maybe not Aaron, because Aaron died. So who became Moses' successor? Joshua, son of Nun. The test, therefore, for a sect to hold on to the true path of God was that that sect is a sect that doesn't reject the successor of a prophet of God. Because imams make this clear. Why did the Jewish community deviate? I'd ask you, why did they deviate? Why 70 of the 71 that they split into going to hell? All of them believed in the prophets of God. What is it that led to them going towards hell? Because when the prophet of God tells you, this is my successor, you don't end up fighting the man. There were armies raised. People ended up fighting the man. That person, a prophet, when he tells you, this is my wasi, this is the man looking after my message, on behalf of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's the man that you have to follow. Therefore, what was the reason they deviated? Not because they never knew Musa. They would utter Moses' name day and night. The successor of Musa was the man they neglected. Then number two, the Christian community separated into 72 groups. When they separated into 72 groups, when they did this, I ask you, why is it that 71 of them will end up in hell and only one is the one that goes to paradise? Again, same reason. Because the successor of their prophet, they rejected. The ones who held on to Simon was the successor of Jesus. Yes? Simon was the successor of Christ. It wasn't Paul. Paul was not the successor of Christ. Yes, Paul makes up most of the New Testament. 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament is Paul. But the reality is that Simon is the one who is the successor of Christ. The criteria for you to hold on to Jesus was to hold on to the man chosen by Jesus. The same way Adam chose Sheath, the same way Suleiman chose Asif bin Barkhiya, the same way Moses had a deputy called Joshua, the same way Jesus told them to hold on to Shamoon, Simon. Did they hold on to him? Unfortunately, many of them went to another direction, the direction of Paul and others, but there were some who held on to Simon. Those of them held on to the true teachings of Christ. There is only one God. I'm a messenger of the Lord. When they held on to it, they were the one saved sect. Then what do we have? We come towards the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, his family. Holy Prophet says what? After me, there will be 73 sects. Only one will go to Jannah. That means that everyone watching this, it should be a level playing field for everyone to choose who they want to follow. Because at the end of the day, had the Holy Prophet said, anyone who says my name is going to Jannah, then we don't need to discuss these things. There's no need to open up history and so on. The only reason we open up these historical discussions is because we know it's a matter of heaven and hell. It's not just a matter of saying whatever happened in the past, let it go. We don't need to focus on anything else. Rather, it's a matter of my akhirah. My prophet is saying that after me, there'll be 73 sects. Only one goes to heaven. The other 72 will go into hell. Then he says, of those, 13 claimed that they had our wilaya. But only one. Look at the criteria again. The criteria was that Moses السلام, what did he do? Moses السلام, the criteria was you follow his successor. Jesus, the criteria was you follow his successor. 
Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi, the criteria was you follow his successor. Then it's up to you to find out who the successor is. Either as a Sunni, you believe that the Prophet, peace be upon him and his family, left this world without appointing, announcing, choosing his successor. Because when people ask, what's the difference between Shia and Sunni? We say that this difference is so simple. What is it? The Sunni world believes the Prophet left this world without announcing his successor. He left it, the people went and elected the first Khalifa, Abu Bakr. We, on the other hand, say that the Prophet who teaches you when you even go to the bathroom, Allah, how to act, would not leave this world without guiding us as to who to hold on to, who's the most knowledgeable of the people. If Moses leaves this world, and Moses tells us Joshua, Jesus leaves, tells us Simon, Suleiman leaves, just in case someone says those are prophets. Okay, Suleiman leaves. He left Asif bin Barqiyah, who's not a prophet of God. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi would not leave this world without ensuring that there is someone who is there to guide the Muslims. And not just anyone. When I say Ali ibn Abi Talib, salawatullah wa salamu alayhi, is to me the leader of the Muslims, the imam of the Muslims, the prophet. I'm not bringing someone random. I'm bringing someone Hindus admire, Sikhs have written poetry on, Christians have written books about, people idolize to a level they called him God. I ask any of you, can you name me a companion of Rasulullah whose people ended up calling God Astaghfirullah? Everybody else, people said yes, political, brave, this, that, but nobody called them God. When you call someone God Astaghfirullah, what type of level is that person? Therefore, the Shi'i argument that Imam Ali السلام, had to be held on to is based on what? Not only is based on the hadith, but is based logically that the Prophet would not leave the world without ensuring there's a leader for the community and that there is no way Moses would have a successor, Christ would have a successor, and Rasulullah who's what the final Sharia would leave a group of people to elect amongst themselves. And even if election amongst yourself is the method of choosing the next leader, for example, election, the first Khalifa himself chose the second Khalifa. Therefore, if the first Khalifa has a right to choose the Khalifa after him, then why would Rasulullah not have that right? So therefore, what do we have? We have, when we come to this discussion, a hadith on sects. There's no running away from the fact that this religion is a religion that ended up being a number of sects. There are firaq which emerge. Someone might say, Sayyidna, but the Quran in Surah 6 verse 159 says that do not split yourself into groups. Yes, there are those. There are those who split themselves into, split the religion into groups and what? Those people ended up causing division. I agree with you. I wish we didn't split this religion into groups. Had we held on to the incident of Ghadir, this religion wouldn't be split into groups. The problem is when this Quran is speaking, it's speaking before Ghadir, not after Ghadir. Therefore, the Quran was guiding us when Rasulullah tells you, Man kuntu mawla fa don't end up saying, this is my opinion, that's your opinion, this is my group, that's your group. The Quran says that such people don't be, because you Muslims, hold on to the rope of Allah, all of you, and do not disunite. What's the rope of Allah? Again, within the literature of the schools of Islam, you have the rope of Allah is the Quran. 
the rope of Allah is Al Muhammad. And no doubt, the Thaqalain, what are they? The Quran and my Ahlul Bayt. So therefore, when someone tells me, Sayyidina, you're saying that there are sects. Sects are in the Hadith. They say, but the Quran says, don't divide into sects. Yes, of course, I agree with it. Wallah, I didn't want to divide. I wish we all were called Muslim only. Because if we were all called Muslim only, we wouldn't have the sectarian differences that exist. Secondly, on this ayah, also when this ayah is saying, don't then split into groups, it could also mean that don't generalize and cause discord amongst the groups. Meaning that when you look at your different groups, don't end up causing animosity amongst you within the community. Let's say, question arises, should I therefore be someone who is sect-centric or someone who's Islam-centric? What do we mean? Should I call myself by my sect or should I call myself by what? I call myself by my religion. Because here there's a fundamental point. There are some who say, I don't like to call myself Shia. I prefer to call myself what? Muslim. Because they say, I don't want sectarianism to increase. I prefer that I call myself Muslim. There's no harm. If you meet non-Muslims, call yourself Muslim. There's no harm. But what's wrong in being sect-centric? At the end of the day, there's nothing, no issue in a person being sect-centric. I'm proud of my Shia identity. And I'm proud to be sect-centric. For what reason? Because of the fact that I'm proud that my sect, what it's left behind, it's left behind a legacy, which is the legacy of the Prophet and his family. What do I mean by this? Because there is an argument that sectarianism sometimes thins religion. When you're involved in too much discussion about the sects, the original core teachings of the religion don't emerge. All it remains is a slanging match and a difference between Shia and Sunni. The reality is no, on the contrary. When I identify myself by my sect, I'm able to allow certain treasures of Islam to emerge, which only my sect has within their traditions. What do I mean? When I say I'm a Shi'i, I say I'm a Shi'i is because I have certain treasures I'm proud of, which I'm ready to give to the world which unfortunately many Muslims have not had access to. Give you an example. Dua Arafah of Imam Al-Hussein alayhi salam. If I just say I'm a Muslim, that's it. I'm a Muslim, you're a Muslim. You've not got the access to the treasures that I have. When I say I'm a Shi'i and I identify by my sect, it's because I know that I have a treasure like Dua Arafah that I can give to the world. Any Muslim can say they're a Muslim, but how many of them have supplications which have been left behind by Rasulullah I always make the point that what differentiates the Shia from any other school in Islam is the du'as that we have. When I say I'm a Shi'i, it's because I know the supplications that I have from my holy prophets and from the Imams are the most beautiful. Can you get a du'a like du'a Arafah? I ask all of you. Is there a du'a with the beauty of du'a Arafah of Imam Al-Hussein? If I just said I'm a Muslim, I guarantee you many in the world wouldn't even know this dua. When I say I've got a dua from the Shi'i school, from the Shi'i heritage, they're like, which ad'iyah do you have? I say, come and read dua Arafah of Imam Al-Husayn. Someone says, what else? Come and read dua Abu Hamza Thamali from Imam Zain Al-Abideen. Come and read, for example, dua Kumail from Imam Amir Al-Mu'mineen. Come and read dua Al-Mashlul. Come and read, for example, Dua at Tawbah, Dua Makarim al-Akhlaq. 
A person, when they identify and their worldview is sect-centric, it doesn't mean that will cause trouble. Rather, sometimes having a sect-centric worldview allows for your teachings to be elaborated upon. Because some people imagine the more you say you're Shia, they call you Ta'ifi. To the extent now, they want Tahrim al-Ta'ifiyya. Don't identify by your sect. Identify just by saying you're a Muslim. Why can't I identify by my sect? At the end of the day, if my sect is a sect which I want to present in a way of respect, there is no harm whatsoever. I, in my sect, I hold on to it. I'm proud of my sect. Someone has to make a distinction between what? A sectarian identity and a sectarian ideology. A sectarian identity is that I am Shi'i and that is my identity. A sectarian ideology is when I use that particular identity to hurt other Muslims, to abuse other Muslims, to put down other Muslims. That we don't need. We don't need an ideology where the ideology produces literature. These are kuffar, these are burning in hell, these are the worst of the worst. We don't need that literature. That literature is certainly seen in the Muslim world. It exists. But for me, having a sectarian identity is not problematic. I can identify with my tashayyur. Someone says, yes, but this sectarianism can sometimes lead to language which is harsh. Well, who said that sometimes history, sometimes the truth hurts? This is the reality. When we say the truth hurts, what do we mean? We mean that, yes, there's going to be certain sensitive parts of history. What do I do? I don't speak about them. Because when I look at the teachings of the Ahlul Bayt, there's no doubt that there are certain moments where if you look at their language, that language would be identified as being what? Would be identified as being sectarian. Would you ever accuse Imam al-Hussein of being sectarian? I ask you. If you tell someone, is Imam al-Hussein sectarian? Because they come and they say that there are certain Shia lecturers, scholars and so on who are sectarian. I ask them, would you say that for example, Imam Ali is sectarian? Or that Imam al-Hassan is sectarian. Or that Imam al-Hussein is sectarian. They will turn around and say, no. Imams, they were full of love. They were always peaceful. They never had any rhetoric where, for example, they would put their sect and their worldview would be sect-centric. Imam Ali's khutbah, Nahj al-Balagha, Shakshaqiyya. Couldn't someone accuse that khutbah of being sectarian? If you haven't read the khutbah in Nahj al-Balagha, khutbah al-Shakshaqiyya, go read it. Because when you come and tell us that the moment we're proud of our Shi'i identity, automatically you're a sectarian speaker. Okay, Imam alayhi salam in Nahj al-Balagha, sermon number three. He goes in and he discusses the first caliphate, the second caliphate, and the third caliphate. Does the Imam just say, for example, that you know what, the first caliph, he was there for a few years. And the second caliph was there for a number of years. And the third caliph was there for a number of years. And does the imam just end it there? Go read the sermon in Nahj al-Balagha. Look at what imam thinks of what happened in the 25 years after the holy prophet, peace be upon him, and his family died. Is Imam Ali sectarian? Because people sometimes want to create an Imam Ali that suits them. Not an Imam Ali that is Mawla. There's a difference. There are some who want an Imam Ali, alayhi salam, who suits them. Imam Ali, you know, he was a lovable person and he was kind. I don't deny. 
Nobody showed love for this religion and for the Lord from the upbringing of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi like Imam Ali alayhi salam. Nobody was as kind as Imam Ali alayhi salam. But when Imam Ali speaks haq, does that mean he's sectarian? Because I guarantee you, if I read you the whole of the khutbah of Shakshaqiyya on Mambar, and I didn't say it was Imam Ali's words, I said it was Sayyid Ammar Naqshawani's words, there would be uproar, how dare you use such language? This is sectarian, do you agree? If I said that there were people who milked the udders of this government, and that innovations came, and that people started to bring their families back into power, who started to steal and corrupt. And so, if I said these things, what would people say? I'm Naqshawani, sectarian. How dare you? Why are you being ta'ifi? I remember once in a hotel in Iraq, coming out from the kitchen, one of the members of the government saw me. And he said to me, he looked at me, tried to make one of these jokes. You know, some people, they just don't have that charisma. They should stay away from trying to joke. But anyway, Allah creates people in different ways. So you had this person, he tried to make this comment. Let's stop with this ta'ifiyyah, you know, with this sectarianism. It clearly showed me not only had his party made an absolute shambles of their time in government, but on top of that, when I looked at this person, I thought to myself, it's clear that even a Shia, we haven't understood what is sectarianism. Rather, we've been bullied into thinking that the moment we begin to speak openly about our beliefs, We've become sectarian straight away. Imam Ali's khutbah in Nahj al-Balagha, khutbah al-Shakshaqiyya, if you have not read it, Google it right now. Sermon 3, Nahj al-Balagha, khutbah al-Shakshaqiyya. Within that khutbah, Imam Ali speaks the haq of what happened after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa died. If I was to speak this haq, you'd have people in our own community. I don't mind about those from outside. I'll come to them in a second. You'll have people from our own communities, they'll be like, these are ta'ifi speakers. Wallah, if it was Imam Ali salam's words, and I put them on Mambar, say ta'ifi, sectarian speaker. Imam Ali salam was loving, kind. Imam Ali, no doubt, wanted the Muslims to come together, otherwise he would have fought those who took his leadership. But Imam Ali salam. At the same time, when he made it clear to everybody what happened, this is what happened to the rich of Islam. I ask you, Imam al-Hasan is ta'ifi, Imam al-Hasan is sectarian. The same Imam al-Hasan looked at Muawiyah, looked at Amr ibn al-As, Walid ibn Uqba, Marwan ibn al-Hakam. One by one he explained which one was the son of pure birth, which one was the son of zina. Now, Imam al-Hasan, would you imagine Imam al-Hasan would say someone's the son of zina? Is if Imam al-Hasan calls someone the son of adultery, isn't this sectarian? As in, what would you say to Imam al-Hasan alayhi salam? Wouldn't you call him sectarian? Wouldn't you say he's a ta'ifi, Imam al-Hasan is a ta'ifi, these Shia, these speakers we have? No, Imam al-Hasan looked at them one by one. He named this Walid bin Aqba, Amr ibn al-As, Marwan ibn al-Hakam. We know that a lot of these were sons of what? They were known as people who did not know what their origin was. Imam Ali never used to call Amr ibn al-As by his name. He used to say, oh, son of Nabigha. You shouldn't call someone by the person who committed adultery with their mother. He would say, oh, son of Nabigha. When Imam Ali, therefore, would call someone, oh, son of the mom, okay, 
And Imam al-Hasan would call someone, for example, son of adultery, like he said to Amr ibn al-As, is this sectarian or no? As in, do we talk about this or we don't talk about it? Why? Because, listen, I've got a day of judgment where there's 73 sects of Islam and only one's going to heaven. I need to know which is the purest line to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi. Likewise, if you were to say Imam al Hussein alayhi salam, was Imam al Hussein sectarian or not? Imam al Hussein, when he was given the choice between the sword and humiliation, he was given the choice between the sword and humiliation. What did Imam al Hussein say? Imam said in his words, the son of adultery gives me a choice between, son, between the sword and humiliation and never will I be humiliated. Who is he referring to? Ibn Ziyad. Imam, why don't you speak in a respectful way? Who am I to tell Abba Abdullah what to say? Ad-Da'i ibn Ad-Da'i. Do you know what that means? Go look online. Google it. Ad-Da'i ibn Ad-Da'i. And what has he given me? When Imam al Hussein says these lines, what's Imam saying? Imam is making it clear that this person, when haq needs to be spoken, it doesn't mean it's sectarian. Who's setting the parameter of sectarianism? Again, Ali al Akbar, just before he dies, when he comes out on the battlefield, I am Ali, son of Hussein, son of Ali. He says the famous lines of poetry until he reaches his final line. Wallah la yahkumufina ibn da'i. Wallah, the son of adultery, will never rule over me. Ali al-Akbar, why are you being sectarian? You should be someone who doesn't talk openly like this. You shouldn't open up about the truth. You shouldn't open up about, even if we don't call it the truth, your version of the truth. Okay? No problem. You shouldn't open up. Stay quiet. We need the Muslims to all come together. One by one, Imam Ali, Imam Al-Hassan, Imam Al-Hussein, one by one is saying that this person is the son of adultery. The son of adultery will never rule over us. These people innovated. This was corrupt. This was a government that stole. That's not sectarian. Therefore, in the episodes of the life, I ask you again, let me ask you another thing. Is this Ziyarat Ashura that the Shia recite? All of us recite this Ziyarat. Within it, there are certain lines. Allahumma al'an Abba Sufyan. When we say, Allahumma al'an Abba Sufyan, Allahumma al'an Shimar, Allahumma al'an person could turn around and say, then why do you say this at home? They say, yes, we say it at home, but we don't like to say it in public. We'll say it in our houses. No problem, but you can highlight to me that this is also can be perceived as being sectarian. You cannot turn around and say that that's not in Shi'i literature. My point is that in Shi'i literature, these things exist. No one can deny that within our literature, the haq was spoken, the identity was clear. No one was scared of making clear what their identity was. Therefore, when I come into the world today, what is the point that we need to make? The point is, I don't mind if you have your identity, you have your history, but allow me to have mine as well. Because the problem is there's a bullying. We can have our narrative. There's only one narrative of Islam. You Shia, the moment you challenge that narrative, you find the other school, Kafir, Shia, Rawafid. Why? Why? Who said there's only one narrative? Who dictates the narrative? Who says there's only one narrative of the history of Islam? There's more than one narrative. Within one sect, there can be many narratives. Let alone two sects 
which are in the same religion. You may have different narratives. What I find flabbergasting is when they have a narrative in, about Islamic history, that is it, as in gospel. The moment you want to say that there's a different narrative, straight away you're shut down. There is no other narrative. You're not allowed to speak your voice. Who are you to dictate the narrative to me? Why is your books of history the barometer for my narrative? Why? So you may have your books. I respect. You have Bukhari. You have Muslim. You have Tirmidhi, Nasa'i, Abu Dawood, and Ibn Majah. Whatever you've got from these books, you can hold on to. I have no problem. But I have my books as well. Of scholars you've heard of, scholars you haven't heard of. Because do you know what the problem in the Shia world is? Many of them get rattled quickly about certain things which are said on the pulpits, which are in their books. But the problem is many are not well read. So straight away they get shaky when they hear that there's things like this in their books. We have within our books, we want to follow the ideas of Sheikh Al-Kulayni, Sheikh Al-Saduq, Sheikh Al-Tawsi, other scholars that others have not heard of. Why can't you have your narrative and I have my narrative? No, there's only one narrative. So what do you mean there's only one narrative? It's either our way or the highway. Let's look at some statements here. Let's see if these statements are sectarian or not. Abu Talib, Kafir. Is that sectarian? I don't have a problem if they say he's Kafir. I really don't. If our brethren who are non-Shia say Abu Talib is a Kafir, I personally don't have a problem with it. Because that's his narrative. Let him have his narrative. Abu Talib is a kafir, is your narrative. Let me have my narrative. I am not saying you're sectarian when you call someone I admire and I'm ready to give my soul away to. When you call him kafir, do I turn around and say you're sectarian? Not at all. That's your narrative. You want to prefer to believe that Abu Sufyan and his children were all Muslim. And I believe that Abu Talib and his children were all Mu'min. You can call Abu Talib kafir, no problem. But why is it when I call someone kafir, automatically I'm sectarian? You calling Abu Talib kafir straight away, they say that you're sectarian. When I come to looking at, for example, certain figures, the moment I try to even say a word on Mambar, sectarian, trouble, how could you? This not, Baba, you have your narrative, I have mine. And we're not living in the Middle East where you could get a shotgun and kill. We're living in Britain. You have a narrative I have. We're living in America. You have a narrative I have. We're living in Canada. You have a narrative I have. Do I have a problem with you saying Abu Talib is a kafir? I recognize that your narratives had many who had hate for Ali. It doesn't surprise me if they hate his father. But for me, I have my narrative as well. What happens if I say Muawiyah is the cause of all the trouble in this religion? I ask, is that sectarian? I don't know. Is it sectarian or not? If I say Muawiyah is the cause of all the trouble in Islam, is it sectarian? I wish I was the one who said it. A Sunni scholar, Sheikh Ahmed al-Kubaisi said Muawiyah is the cause of all the masaib in the religion. When Sheikh Ahmed al-Kubaisi says this, there's no issue. If we now say Muawiyah is the cause of all the trouble, this is my reading. Therefore, I have a sectarian identity. I'm proud that in my literature, I see Muawiyah is the cause of all the trouble in the religion of Islam. In which way? A man who fights Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib, that man you really think is still a Muslim? 
a man who institutes the cursing of Imam Ali السلام, that man you really think is still a Muslim in all honesty someone who institutes the cursing of Imam Ali because you keep telling me that you Shia cursed the Sahaba you Shia cursed the Sahaba you Shia cursed the Sahaba Muawiyah when he curses the greatest of Sahaba there's no issue both are radiyallahu anhu but brother I don't mind that's your narrative you believe Muawiyah even though he fought Imam Ali السلام, you still want to call him Amir call him but give me the right to look at a different version of history if I say Yazid la'natullah alayhi is that sectarian? I want to ask. If I say Yazid, sectarian or not? It wasn't me who said it. Dr. Adnan Ibrahim, again, Sunni, who says Yazid, he says that. If I say it, you're like, Baba, why are you doing you No, no. They have a version where they say, no la'na on Yazid. Dr. Adnan Ibrahim said, they said, no, we don't like Yazid. He has not done anything wrong. But we won't do la'na on him. No problem. Some of our own Shia even come and say, don't do la'na on Yazid. Why? I remember once one of them saying, don't do la'na. Allah is all forgiving. I said what the famous Persian poetry said. They tell me, don't do la'na on Yazid. For Allah may forgive him. Therefore, I do double the la'na. For if Allah is willing to forgive Yazid for killing Imam al-Hussein, then he'll forgive my la'na on Yazid as well. So what do you have here? Yazid, la'natullah alayh. If I say that, am I now sectarian or not? Am I sectarian? Who sets the boundaries of sectarianism? Who sets the boundaries of what is sectarian language? Who is the one who sets this? If I now say, Fatima al-Zahra died angry with so-and-so. Is this sectarian? Am I allowed to say it? Because when you, for example, talk about companions getting angry, is no problem. I can see Fatima al-Zahra died angry with so-and-so. Like Bukhari says, is it sectarian if I say it? Because even now in our mosques, the moment we want to discuss parts of history, we're straight away being called sectarian. As if you can't even say anything. Say what? In the name of unity, we should not discuss these things. Baba, I have no problem with unity. We can sit on a table and discuss theology. But the reality is, you have a narrative, I have a narrative. There's no problem whatsoever. You can have yours. Someone says, but you shouldn't do tabarra because it might hurt other people's feelings. In the same way, they idolize someone who does tabarra of Imam Ali on a day like Safin, brings up generations of people who curse Ali ibn Abi Talib. Likewise, I dissociate with this person. What's wrong with it? Why are you being bullied by people who set the boundaries as to what's sectarian? Question emerges. In the Shi'i world today, from the voices who are public online, voices who are, in some cases, followed by hundreds of thousands or millions, what's the different opinions on this area? First and foremost, you have of the voices, Ayatollah al-Khamenei. May Allah lengthen his life. He says that it is not right for any of the Shia to curse the wife of the Prophet, the wives of the Prophet, and the companions. That's his worldview. And he is justified because what will it bring to us if we end up cursing wives or companions? Of course, the differences with a wife or a companion is not haphazard. I was in a cab one day in New York, and someone turned around to me and he said, you know the Shia, 
they don't like so and so and so and so and so and so. I replied by saying, brother, do you think that they just woke up one morning and picked a few names out of a bowl and said, I don't like so and so and so and so? Obviously, if we have a difference of opinion with the wife of the Prophet, it's because she fought Imam Ali at Jamal, at the Battle of Jamal. If I have a difference of opinion with the first Khalifa, it's because he angered Fatima al-Zahra salam on the incident of Fedak, for example. That's the reason. But Ayatollah Khamenei says, this cursing that some have, that this is something which is not productive. That's his worldview, no doubt. Then you have, for example, which other worldviews? You may have, for example, the worldview of Sheikh Haidar Hubballah. Sheikh Haidar Hubballah, what does he say? He says that, look, even this discussion of companions and saying most of these companions had deviated, you shouldn't go that far. On the contrary, Imam Zain al-Abidin has a dua for the companions. So when the Imam has a dua for the companions in Sahih al-Sajjadiyah, we shouldn't go in that world where we talk about the companions in a rhetoric which is harsh. You see, this is all within the Shi'i school. But look at the plethora of opinions. From one side, haram to curse the companions, haram to curse the wives. The other side, you can't even discuss in a harsh way. You discuss historically, but you have to realize that also Imam Zain al-Abidin prayed for the companions. Therefore, if Imam Zain al-Abidin prayed for the companions, you shouldn't discuss in this way. Then you have another. For example, you can see the likes of who? There are two who are online. And these two who are online, they have also followers who follow them. Sheikh Yasir al-Habib, Sheikh Hassan Allah Yari. These two who have followers online, you may see and within their discussions, there are certain areas where they go complete opposite. Because in their worldview, you go all out and you present and you don't fear from anything. Is this necessarily the best approach? At the end, each has taken their own approach. Are they liable to what their marja says? Yes, if their marja that they follow says that you cannot do this, then their marja is the guide. But if their marja doesn't say this, then they are making their own worldview. A worldview that hasn't come haphazardly. A worldview where they believe that Shia literature is saying these things. What is the need for us not to say them? Reality is that saying these things, in some cases, can cause loss of lives, can cause unnecessary deaths. I personally, when I look at these things, there is no doubt that some of the Shia in the world are affected when all truths are spoken. But that shouldn't mean that we could not speak out openly on certain parts of history. If I look, for example, mentioning Sheikh Yasser al-Habib or Sheikh Hassan al-Layari, you look and you see that they sometimes, unfortunately, even our own scholars, sometimes they attack. As in, what's the need? If you, for example, are looking at certain parts of history and you're attacking certain people who you believe historically oppressed al-Muhammad, but then why our own maraja' do you attack? Why have we reached a level where even amongst each other there is slandering of maraja' from within the school? As in if that's where we're going to head, then that type of rhetoric is not something which is helpful to us. Does that mean when we mention these names that we subscribe to all of their opinions? Not at all. And I'd like to make this clear. Because slanderously on the internet, there are those who try and associate us with all of these names. Each of these has their own following, has their own opinions, but it's not me to come and discuss their personal life. I discuss what they have come out with in their understanding of sectarianism. 
that there is nothing wrong with being sect-centric, with being proud of one's identity, but at the same time, nobody should be there to say that their narrative is the only narrative. And that also within the Shi'i school, there are differences of opinion. Some people say that you people, what you do on the mambar is that you cherry pick. What do I mean by cherry pick? You cherry pick certain parts of history and then you decide to build the framework from those parts of history. Well, that's my tradition. <clears throat> At the end of the day, that's my tradition. What else do I have to build on except my tradition? Of course, at the end of the day, if I'm going to look at my tradition, I'm going to see that there are certain incidents within my tradition. When I see those incidents within my tradition, I recognize that a framework is built. What do I mean by that? I recognize that unfortunately, from the day the Holy Prophet died, peace be upon him and his family, there's been incidents which without a doubt I have to refer back to. Because they highlighted to me the difference between purity and impurity. The difference between those chosen by Allah and those who were the soldiers of shaitan. The difference between those who held on to the teachings of Rasulullah and those who opposed it. Therefore, if those who say you shouldn't open up history because it's sectarian, then one day we might not even be opening up Karbala for all you know. Because there's a possibility that someone will tell our children. I ask you, how many of our children know what happened to Fatima al-Zahra Because on Mimbar in the mosque, can you speak about it? You also don't talk about these things, the sectarian. So how will our children know what happened? And the same thing will happen with Karbala, I guarantee you. That there'll be people who will say, don't talk about the difference between Hussein and Yazid. Like how before, 10 years ago, nobody used to praise Muawiyah. Now, don't talk about the difference between Ali and Muawiyah. Today, in 10 years' time, there will be people who will say, Hussein, Yazid, this political battle, that's it. It's not a political battle. On the contrary, it's the difference between truth and falsehood. <clears throat> no doubt. And it's the difference between purity and impurity. And when I look, therefore, at Karbala, Karbala doesn't make me sectarian. Karbala, on the contrary, allows me to understand the principles of this religion and allows me to understand the definition of the morals of this religion. Looking at morals of those who were old as 90 and the morals of those who were young as 11 and 12. Yes. What is Karbala for me? I use it so that I can put down other Muslims. Karbala is not a sectarian tool. Karbala, on the contrary, is what? Karbala is a lesson that is for all of humanity. You could be 90, you can relate to the likes of Abis al-Shakiri. And you can be 11 and 13. And you could look into the eyes of Aun and Muhammad, no doubt. Believe you me, <clears throat> Aun and Muhammad, the example that they left behind for us, no doubt is an example that can affect the lives of every human being. Every single person, every single one with a morality and principle can be affected by what happened. Because what you find with them, they came to represent which school? The school of Al Muhammad. They were the grandsons of Rasulullah and their mother Zainab. How many of you yearn on a night like this to be holding the dharih of Zainab? How many of you wish that you were next to Sayyidah Zainab? 
next to her you find that Sayyidah Zainab came towards Imam Al-Hussein she could see that Aba Abdullah his companions had passed away she knew that Imam Al-Hussein was nearing a moment where he was going to be alone on the plains of Karbala the narrations what do they mention the narrations mention that she came to Aun and Muhammad, her beloved sons. She said to them, my sons, make me proud in front of my mother Fatima I want you to go and make me proud. Go to your khalu, go to your uncle Hussein Can you imagine these two young boys coming where? Coming towards who? Coming towards their uncle Imam Hussein When they came towards their uncle, they stood with their uncle when they came and they stood with their uncle they said at that moment what they said to their uncle at that moment that we want to be alongside you we want to be there for you the uncle straight away said no my beloved sons go back look after your mother Zainab they began to walk back to Sayyidah Zainab Sayyidah Zainab took the two of them she said why are you back here I tell you what patience does this lady have but what sacrifice does this lady have she said at that moment, why are you back here? They said, he said, return back to your aunt, to your mother. Go and look after your mother. She could see they were disappointed. Why? Layla had given Akbar and Ramla had given Qasim and Umm al-Baneen had given four. So they could see there was a disappointment there. So the mother at that moment began to walk to her brother. I want you to imagine the scene. She came towards her brother. She said to him, Aba Abdi he said to her yes my beloved Zainab she said I want to say something to you you didn't want them to be fighting now he said to her Zainab I want them to be there to look after you she said okay I want to say something to you he said go ahead tell me my sister she said do you remember the battle of Safin when my brother Abbas was so young when he came out on the battlefield do you remember our father the smile he had on his face he said to her, yes, I do. She said, then let me have that smile on my face. Which mother, any mothers who are listening to this, would you ever allow your sons to go in that way? But no one teaches sacrifice like Zainab Then she said something else which made him cry. What was it? I ask you in the name of my mother Fatima. I ask you in the name of my mother Fatima Zahra, allow my boys to represent me. Ramla is given Qasim, Umm al is given four, Layla has given Akbar and Rabab. In a moment, we'll see Azhar no more. Allow my boys to represent me on this day so I may be proud when I see. My mother Fatima, Fatima, oh my grandmother, if you're here in this majlis, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you. I ask for your apology. I apologize to you for reciting this. I ask for your forgiveness. They came to their uncle. He embraced both of them one by one. When they came out on the battlefield, they attacked everyone who was in front 
sons of them. Whenever a person came to strike on Muhammad would defend him. When a person would come and attack Muhammad, Aoun would defend him. There was a moment, mind you. What was the moment? Every moment they turn around to their uncle Abbas, alayhi salam. Why? Because they wanted to make sure that Abbas was proud of what they were doing. And that moment, Umar bin Sa'ad called out, don't fight them one on one. They said, why? He replied by saying what? He said, these are the grandsons of Ali ibn Abi Talib. All of a sudden, surrounding them from every side, the soldiers began to attack them. When a soldier would attack, Aoun Muhammad would jump in his way. When a soldier would attack, Muhammad Aoun would come in his way. When they both fell on the ground, they called out, Assalamu alayka ya Aba Abdullah. Imam al Hussein came towards them like he came towards everybody else. When he came, he sat by them. When he sat by them, what did he do? He saw them in their final moments. He knew it was going to be difficult for two reasons. Number one, what are they going to say to him? But number two, how does he say it to Sayyidah Zainab? Better boys have died. They looked towards the eyes of the Imam. One of them said, Tell our mother that we never drank any water from the Furat. How can we drink water and our mother dies thirsty? When the Imam took them both back, Zainab السلام, was there standing. She wouldn't cry. Her boys have just died. When she went to Kufa, she didn't cry for them. When she went to Sham, she never cried for them. When she came back towards Kufa, Karbala, she never cried for them. When she entered the house in Medina, Allahu Akbar, and she saw two empty mattresses in the room. All of you know where I'm going. Because a mother looks forward to seeing her her boys mattresses when she saw two empty mattresses she fell on the ground oh my beloved Aunan Muhammad I would have cried for you but Hussein had no one to cry for him inna lillah wa inna alayhi raji'oon wa sayalam alladheena zalamu we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to raise us with Muhammad and Al Muhammad. Raise us with the Imam of our time, Imam Sahib Al Asri wa Zaman. Ya Allah, with these tears that flow from the eyes, allow us the ziyarah of Sayyidah Zainab salam. There are many of you, many of you who wish you could return to Sham, don't you? How many of you wish you could go back to Sayyidah Zainab, to the shrine of Sukaina Ruqayya? How many of you wish you could come back with these tears? Ask for your hajat. 